was Troy and Pat mentioned, we're talking today and continuing on in our series about our identity, about the, the judgment of God. And like, what an ominous topic to talk about. Like, you know, that doesn't go on your marquee out front the church, you know, when you think about it. It's, it's, it's really something that Christians, though we probably should talk more about it, don't talk about much in casual conversation. I mean, if you're at Starbucks with a friend, you know, you're not going to say, hey, you want to talk about the judgment of God for the next hour? I mean, it's just not something that usually comes up. Uh, but as we're going to see today, it's something that God talks about, quite frankly and honestly and regularly in the scriptures, and we should as well. And we need to wrestle with it. And, you know, the reality is you and I have a love-hate relationship with judgment. We really do. And the reason I know that is because in our everyday world, certainly there's an aspect of judgmentalism and judgment that we don't like. Like if you have a friend that's a judgmental person or if you're being judged by other people, none of us enjoy that. That's not a, a good thing and we don't, we don't draw to that. At the same time, we live in a culture today that's built upon justice. If somebody does something wrong, we all agree that they should appear before a judge and that right needs to be, wrong needs to be righted. And so, you know, we have this one side where we like judgment. We have this other side where we don't. We have a love-hate relationship with it. And today what I need you to do is, is let's bring God into that picture and let's talk about what God says about this thing called judgment, what his posture is to it. And as I said last week, I promise you that if you hang in with me to the end of this message, you're going to like where it goes. You are. You're going to feel good, especially as you focus on Jesus Christ, which is why we gather as Christians. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, I thank you that... Uh, your word does not shy away from topics that might be difficult for us to wrestle with, but we know at the end of the day are good for our soul. And they're good because they're true and they're right. And Lord, even last week as we talked about your anger and saw that in Christ your anger is no more, uh, this week, Lord, we need to talk about your judgment. And so God, help us to do so honestly and in a forthright manner, but Lord, also in a way that we focus on what your word says when it comes to Christ and his role in our lives. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, all of us have had experiences in life where we know that we're in deep trouble. I, I promise you, if you and I were having a cup of coffee and I said, share with me an experience in which you've had in life in which you knew that you were in deep trouble and that foreboding, overwhelming feeling that you have, you could probably tell me a story. I remember shortly after I got my driver's license, when I was 16 years old, I had one of those I am in deep trouble experiences. I want to tell you about it. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but in the hometown that I grew up in, Chagrin Falls, Ohio, which is about 30 minutes east of Cleveland, a very small town outside of Cleveland, the local high school, Chagrin Falls High School, would once a year uh, raise money for what they called the Boosters Club. Some of you remember this, the Boosters Club. And the Booster Club would, would raise money to send kids to college or help the sports in the school or things like that. And so to raise money, they would have the kids go around and, and knock on doors in the community. And they'd give them a bumper sticker that says Chagrin Falls High School Booster Club. And then they'd give a donation to it and, and we'd raise money. And to help the high school students do this, they would actually set kind of a, a competition that the group of kids, three or four kids, that would raise the most money would get a prize. And it was a long time ago for me, so I don't remember what the prize was, but in a small town, you're bored already, so we thought one year that we'd join them in raising money for the Boosters Club. 
So me and my buddies were out there knocking on doors, raising money for the Boosters Club, and when it got down to the wire, about an hour left until the deadline, I can remember being told that we were in second place. We were in second place. Now, nobody likes to be in second place, and so we had to quickly somehow come up with some more money in order to be in first place. So I'm sitting there in the parking lot of Chagrin Falls High School. I just turned 16. I'm with my father's car, and my best friend Dale says, I know a rich family out at Chagrin Lakes, which was a nice community about three miles outside of town. Think D.C. Ranch, but not as nice. But anyways, in my hometown, it was the nicest we had. So we get in my car, and we start heading out to uh, Chagrin Lakes to try to knock on this door in order we can win the money and, 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 and get some, some more money for the Boosters Club. And my dad back then had a 1960s Mercedes sedan, and we started heading out of town. And as we were driving out of town, many of you can picture this, as soon as you hit kind of the, the city limits, which was a 25 zone, it turns into a 35 zone as you head out into more rural areas. And you can picture cornfields and wheat fields and power lines running through there. And in my hometown, when you hit that 35 zone, it was very tempting to go faster than that, especially for a 16-year-old who just learned to drive. And yet to help you not be so tempted, there was usually a patrol car that would sit there by the power lines just trying to help people not speed in a very tempting environment. And on that particular day, as I was heading outside of town, speeding up Bell Street for a good cause, I happened to look at the speedometer as I was going past the power lines, and I kid you not, it read 85 miles per hour. <laughs> and right at that moment, I also happened to look over to my right, where the dirt road goes into the power lines, and there was sitting a patrol car. 85 miles per hour in a 35 zone, a 16-year-old kid and a policeman sitting right there. And folks, I knew that I was in trouble, deep trouble. And to this day, I can still remember thinking, as only a 16-year-old could think, I wonder if he saw me. <laughs> I think it's like a neurological problem that 16-year-olds have. It's like, well, of course he saw you, and obviously he did, and he came right after me, and the lights are flashing and all of that. And again, I, I knew I was in trouble. I mean, I had this foreboding, foreboding feeling that I'd gone way past the safe marker buoy, that I was coloring outside of the lines right now, and I was busted. All of us knows what that feels like. And so the policeman walked up to the car. He asked to see my driver's license, and he said, son, why are you going so fast? And again, I did a lot of bad things in high school, but one of the things I didn't do when I got busted was lie. So I told him all the details, the booster club, the prize, the deadline, which was now passed, everything. <laughs> and as long as I live, I'll never forget what happened next. He went back to the patrol car, and he took my license, and he spent some time there. And it seemed like an eternity. And my friends were no help at all. They're going, boy, are you in trouble, and glad it's not me, and things like that. Like Job's friends, you know. And Finally, the policeman came back to my car window, and he handed me my driver's license back, and he said this. He said, son, you've only been driving a few months. If I cite you for this violation going as fast as you were, I'd have to take you in right now, impound your dad's car, and you wouldn't drive for at least a year. And then he looked at me and said, so slow down, and he walked away. Folks, i got to tell you, outside of my salvation, that is the biggest move of grace that I have ever experienced in my entire life. 
I mean, it was just, it was a moment in time. And ever since then, I've never gone over the speed limit. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, I can't believe you guys would buy that. Anyways, but like most of you, at least for the next week, I was good. And uh, if you and I were having a cup of coffee and I said, tell me a story of deep trouble and what that felt like for you, you could tell me. And some of the stories would be funny, like that one, because it's a story of old. But we all know that in this fallen world of ours, there's lots of stories of deep trouble that aren't so funny. I pastored in Detroit for nine years when I was younger. And I have a friend from those days, Tom, who's in jail in northern Michigan still to this day, serving 30 years for dealing cocaine on the streets of Detroit. He has three young kids. He knows the feeling of deep trouble. Chuck Colson, who just passed away this year, who was involved in the Watergate scandal, he knows the feeling of deep trouble. We have soldiers right now from America in Afghanistan who are on patrol, and they know the feeling of being in deep trouble. And their families back here who are praying for them on a regular basis, and many of us feel that feeling of deep trouble. But we all know that dreadful feeling. And as we continue in our look, at what the Bible says about who we are, and I mean all of us as humanity in general, we need to take a look today at a very sobering but real aspect of who we are in which it causes God to say to us as humanity, you're in deep trouble. In fact, God says the trouble that you're in with me makes any of the stories you can tell this side of heaven look like a sunny day in Arizona. They look like a walk in the park. Now, we need to wrestle with the fact that God says that outside of Christ, we're in deep trouble. So look up here on the screen. This is where we've come from in this series. You're an image bearer. You've been made in the image of God. Wonderful, unique, creative, and he loves you. You're an image bearer right where you sit right now. But as we saw a few weeks ago, you're also fallen. You have fallen from great heights. Sin has entered into your life. You now make a lot of mistakes you mess up on a regular basis, you are fallen. And as we saw last week, this makes God mad. And so his wrath, his anger is kindled against us, and so we're in trouble, but we're not done yet. Because the Bible then goes on, the book of Romans that we're looking at now, to say we're even in deep trouble. And many people ask, why? Why does it stop with just trouble? Two things I want to share with you here today that will help us understand why God says we're in deep trouble, then I'm going to share one thing that's going to make your day. So first, if you pull out your outline or look up here on the screen, here's the first thing of why we're in trouble, and that is that God says there will come a judgment from God someday. Now get this, and it will be based on each person's actions. It's true. There will come a judgment someday from God, and it will be based on each person's actions. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 2. As many of you know, we've been using Romans chapters 1 through 5 as our guide in this series. And so we're going to continue with looking at what Romans says about these themes. Open up to Romans chapter 2, and we're going to be reading much of it here this morning. Right now I want to read verses 2 through 3, and then skip down to verse 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. You can look up here on the screen. Here's what it says. It says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Then skip down to verse 5. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, I've taught you guys before that any time the Bible repeats itself, that you see repetition in a very short time frame in the Bible, that you need to dial into that because it's trying to make a point. And so isn't it interesting here that it mentions three times in these short verses the judgment of God and then it attaches it to a particular day. Don't miss that. One of the things that the Bible makes monotonously clear, and I mean all the way from the Old Testament prophets to Jesus in the Gospels to Paul in the New Testament to John in Revelation, is that someday God's going to put a stop to this world. As C.S. Lewis says, the director of the play is going to step out onto the stage and call the play over. And on that day, the Bible says, there will also be a judgment in which God calls into account all human beings. Those who have died and those who are living. And this will be a judgment based on how we lived our lives. Revelation calls it the great white throne. And this judgment will not be based on feelings And it will not be based on whether somebody had good motives or not. Get this, it won't even be based on whether you tried hard or not. So there'll be no A for effort on this judgment day. It will be solely based on one's actions. If you don't believe me, look at how verses 6 through 11 of Romans 2 go on to talk about this future judgment that was just laid out in verses 2 through 5 that we read. Look up here on the screen. It couldn't be more clear. It says, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace... For everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, we really need to wrestle with this passage here. Because many, many people think they know what this is talking about here, but I don't think they've thought deeply enough about what it's saying and more importantly, what it's setting up. So don't miss what it's saying here in verse 6. It says that God will render. That's a great word, render. It means award, pay up, yield. It carries with it a sense of return on investment. God will render to each one, meaning each and every human being, according to his or her own works, according to their actions. And just so there's complete clarity, it then goes on in verses 7 through 10 to list the only two possible outcomes of this judgment. Did you catch it? Twice it says in verses 7 and 10 that for those who do good, there will be eternal life and peace. And then in verses 8 and 9, for those who do evil and don't live by truth, there will be tribulation and distress. I I highlighted it there for you so you wouldn't miss it. A judgment by the great judge himself, arguably the most fair and impartial judge ever, based on what each person has done. That's what's going to happen in the future. And before we go on to talk about what that's going to be like for each one of us, let me just pause real quick and make the point that I think this makes sense. Though some people would like to say, why is God so hard on us? When you think reasonably and rationally about this, we would all agree that if God is a God of justice, 
if we are made to be people who embrace justice, then certainly how we live our lives should matter and there should be justice, right and wrong and rewards and consequences. God made us smart. He made us willful with the capacity to do good or evil and he will someday hold us accountable for our actions. And if you think that's unfair, just think about any culture alive today any society today, any society historically, they've all patterned themselves after this. Every one of them believes in justice and right and wrong and the fact that if you do good, you should be rewarded. If, rewarded. if you don't, then there should be some sort of penalty for it. We all function that way. In our families, in our society, every major world religion has an element of this in its teaching. It's our friend and it's also part of who God is as well. Hebrews 9.27, I think, sums it up neatly when it says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, a judgment based on actions, good and or bad. And it's right at this point where the average American would say this, so what's the problem, Jamie? I, I mean, come on, I, I, you talk about trouble and deep trouble. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler as well. And, and so what's the problem with this judgment thing? I think I'm going to do okay. I, I think this is epitomized by a quote I found years ago in my study from Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, in which he was talking about religion and faith. And listen to what he says. I think this sums up what most Americans think. He says, one day we're all going to die, and God is going to judge us, our good deeds and our bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. And I think this is the way that 90, if not 95% of people in the western part of the world, which includes America and Europe and all that, tend to think. We think, I do pretty good, so What's the problem here? I mean, if God weighs out my good versus bad, the scales are going to tip pretty much to the good. And so why in the world would you suggest that I'm in deep trouble? Well, here's why. Because Romans goes on to answer this question for us in almost inarguable terms. And it basically tells us this, and this is point two, and that is that no one will pass this judgment. Everyone is going to fail. Nobody will pass Everybody will fail. And, and if you're thinking with me or not, you go, well, how can that be? How can there be a judgment based on actions and nobody could pass? On two levels, in at least two different ways, Romans here shows us the how and why each and every person will fail to pass the future judgment based on actions. So first, look at how Romans 2 begins this discussion once again. Let's read now verse 1. And verses 2 and 3 again of Romans chapter 2. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, to try to dial in to what this is saying here because this is really key to God's argument. 
And notice that what it's saying here is that it begins by saying that many people today, if not all people, are really good at judging other people's behaviors and actions as right or wrong. Many people don't like to admit it, especially in our multicultural and very tolerant society today. But the fact is, Romans is right, most of us, all of us, are really good at judging other people's behaviors. And that's a really important starting place. I've thought about this a lot over the years. I have a lot of friends who are prideful about the fact that they're very, very tolerant. I have family members like that, very, very tolerant of other people. And yet, as I thought about it, in order for us to consider ourselves tolerant, you have to have a standard of what is intolerant, right? In other words, even the most non-judgmental person you know who says, I never judge, I'm completely tolerant, has to know what intolerance is, so they have to provide that moral standard upon everybody around them. Does that make sense? So nobody is free from this idea of judging. Even the most non-judgmental person is making a judgment. And that's what Romans is saying here. We're all good at judging right or wrong, even the most tolerant among us, especially in others. But here's what Romans is further saying. And that is that not only do we judge other people's behavior, but then we have this uncanny ability that when we are in their shoes to at the very least do similar actions, verse 2 says we practice such things, or at the very most we do the exact same actions, verse 1 says we practice the very same things. In other words, what Romans is saying is that we're all hypocrites. That at the end of the day, for all of us who judge others, what we don't realize is the elephant in the room, and that's that we have issues too, and our issues as, are as just as glaring as the people that we are judging. And though most people don't see that and don't want to admit it, the Bible says, well, that's fine, you're self-deceived. You've read your own press releases because what you don't see is that you're just as guilty as everybody else and the mere fact that you're really good at judging and then don't even see your own issues gives you away. So I love how John Stott, who passed away this year, a great, great uh, scholar and Bible teacher, said it in his commentary on Romans. Look up here on the screen. This is good. He says, Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgments of others as we are lenient toward ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. We even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others the very faults we excuse in ourselves he says, Freud called this moral gymnastic projection, but Paul and Romans described it centuries before Freud. And folks, he's right. If I followed you around for a day, and I won't, I promise you, but if I did, I would be able to point to numerous examples where you were judging other people for what they did only to find out that you're not too far away from them in your own actions. I could give you so many examples, but we'll go back to Chagrin Falls, where I came from before I came here. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a more rural area. And so when I moved back to Chagrin, I'd grown up there in 2001 to pastor my home church. 
from 2001 to 2007, one of the first things I did, and I wanted to do this for years, was buy a pickup truck. I, I didn't need one, but everybody had one back in my hometown, so I bought a 15-year-old pickup truck from my father-in-law, and it was beautiful. He had about 60 coats of wax on this thing, 59,000 original miles, no air conditioning, but it was a beautiful pickup truck. And, and I used this pickup truck to help fix up this old farmhouse that Kim and I had bought, and one of the first things we were doing was finishing the basement. And I'll never forget one particular Friday, I was working at, at the church, and I was coming back home, and, and to come home, you had to go on Route 306 outside of Chagrin. And Route 306 was in the main thoroughfares that, that everybody used to get from all the little communities in, in, in rural Ohio there. And as I was coming home, it was just a two-mile drive, I was, uh, I was behind a big semi-truck, because a lot of semi-trucks would use 306. And I remember being in a hurry to get home, or maybe I was even going to the church, I can't remember which, but I remember just being so frustrated as I was behind the semi-truck. And, and like so many of you, I remember just copping an attitude to myself, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, why are these guys always going so slow? It's a 45 zone. The cop's down on by, by the power lines in that 35 zone, so he's not up here. And, and why are these guys going so slow, and they take turns like it's molasses in January, and you know, we pay taxes for these roads. We got Munn Road, we got Auburn Road, they could use those roads, we ought to outlaw trucks on Route 306. So I'm thinking that for the three-minute drive that I have to my home or church. And then, in an uncanny way, on Monday, it was my day off, and I, and I had to work in the basement, so I got in my pickup truck and I went to Home Depot. Home Depot is about 20 miles south on Route 306, and uh, as I got down to Home Depot, I got some drywall and some wood and nails and all the things that I needed. And for those of you who are truck guys, you'll get this. I had a six-foot bed, not an eight-foot bed, so it's a short bed pickup truck. And so the drywall sticking out the back, the wood sticking out the back, and so I realized on the way home I needed to go slow. You see where I'm going with this? I realized I needed to go slow. So I'm traveling there on Route 306, and I'm going about 35, 40 in, in, in 306, and, and there's like a traffic jam behind me because everybody's wanting to get going. And, and every time there was a little passing zone, people would pass me, and some of them would give me this gesture that I didn't understand, but I don't think it was very positive. And so there I am in 306, and they're honking their horn. And within about two minutes, I found myself thinking this. I thought, why are you people in such a hurry? I, you don't own the road. I pay taxes for this road. I have just as much of a right to go 35 or 40 when I need to as you to do. And why are you in such a hurry anyways? You people need to relax and chill out and come to my church. That's what I'm thinking the whole time driving down 306. Now what I am, am I right at that moment between Friday and Monday? I'm a hypocrite, right? I mean, I'm an absolute hypocrite. Here I am Friday arguing this. And on Monday, I'm arguing this only to suit my needs. And the point is, we do that all the time. I mean, more seriously, we, we, we yell at our spouse or we yell at our kids in a moment of impatience when they have done something for the upteenth time that we've asked them not to do. But then we cry foul the next day when they get impatient with us on something that they've asked us not to do. But somehow we're more justified than they are. Or we get mad or at the arrogance of politicians or civic leaders. I know you guys do. And the unwise decisions that they make. But then we're mystified when a fellow worker or a subordinate at work gets mad at the decisions that we make. But somehow we're more justified 
Or, or how about hitting right into this place right now? We judge another brother or sister at church who just can't seem to see the error of their ways or falls into that nasty sin once again, and yet we cry victim when they don't show any patience with the things that we struggle with. How many times do you find yourself doing that? I mean, we do this all the time, folks. And here's the simple point. This is not to get down on you. This is why Romans says you're in deep trouble on Judgment Day because <laughs> you don't realize it. You think you're doing great, but you don't realize what a hypocrite you really are. I, I've used this joke for years. The, the guy who invited his friend to church and said, I don't want to go to church. That church is full of hypocrites. And his friend said, no, it's not full. we got room for one more. <laughs> and that's true. I, I mean, that's the way we need to see it. The first reason Romans tells us we won't pass judgment it is because of this judging, then doing the same thing pattern in our life. Now, hang on to that. Notice more quickly a second reason that Romans tells us that everybody will fail, the judgment based on actions someday. And you need to, again, listen close to this one because I don't think many people really get this today. And it's found in Romans chapter 3. So we're going to go to 3 and then we're going to go back to 2 uh, as we finish out next week on, on a different subject. But look at Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. It's similar to Romans 2, but subtly different. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, now here it is, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Then it quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, wrestle with me, church. It would be so easy to read a passage like this and say, this is talking about Mick Jagger, Right? I mean, this is obviously not talking about me. I mean, this is just talking about people. This is talking about Ted Bundy. This is talking about the Unabomber. This is talking about, uh, you know, Gaddafi. This is not talking about me. This is obviously talking about evil people in this world. The only problem is, if you look closely, it's saying none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have to, I mean, it's obvious here it's not talking about the outliers in our world today. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. So how can the Bible say that nobody seeks God, that nobody understands, that nobody does good? Because you and I all know that there are plenty of people who do good, even non-Christians. And there's plenty of people who are seeking God, even non-Christians. So how can it say here that no one does these things? You want to dial into this. The reason that it says this is because God has a different standard than we do. You see, Romans 3 here is saying compared to God and His standard for us, the standard that He declared at creation, the standard that He made us in His image to live up to, this standard compared with this, nobody measures up. We all fall short. No one's going to pass judgment day. You see, most of us feel good about ourselves because we compare ourselves, as I said a few weeks ago, to others around us. And that's a cop-out, isn't it? Because you're always going to find somebody who's messing up more than you. I mean, there's 7 billion people in the world. 
There's four million people just here in Phoenix. I promise you, you will find somebody that's more of a mess up than you. And yet the problem is, is that we all hunt for those people, and some of us don't have to look far. We're living right next to them or something like that. And so we look at our neighbor, and we say, well, you know what, I'm not as bad as them, so I must be doing pretty good. And God says, you got to be kidding me. Your standard is your neighbor? Your standard is Hollywood? Your standard is the media? Your standard is an ethics class at ASU? God says, come on. Your standard is me. Your standard is how I have made you, what I require of you. And all Romans is saying here is that when that's our standard, none of us measure up. And though God could lower the bar for us, think about this. If he lowered the bar for us, he's got to lower it for everybody. Amen? We, we want him to lower it just to our level. You know, but why would God do that? I mean, God says, if I lower it for you, then i got to let everybody else off the hook. And that's not what I'm going to do, because that would compromise my character. That would compromise my justice. That would compromise my integrity. And that would compromise my holiness. None of which, when you and I are thinking rightly, we ever want God to do. So Romans 3.23 is right. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our standard. And that's the second reason why none of us, we even come close to passing Judgment Day, and that's why we're in deep trouble. And my final question to you before we go to this, the communion table is simply this. Wouldn't it just be awful if God stopped here? Think about that with me. Wouldn't it just be terrible if God, who could stop here, was to say, you all made your bed, now sleep in it. I made you good. I made you in my image. I made you just a little bit lower than the angels. And look what a pathetic mess you've made of this world. And he could just leave us there and he would be justified in doing so. But the good news of the gospel is that he doesn't. But we're going to flesh this out in coming weeks, but I've been ending every message in this whole series on this glorious note. And that is that God says you have fallen, but the end of the story is I offer you forgiveness. He said last week, I'm angry, but the end of the story is you don't have to experience my anger if you come to Christ. And this week, here's the third point that we need to understand, and that is that in Jesus Christ, you can pass the judgment. I know it sounds almost too good to be true, but, but this is the gospel, folks. The Bible says that once you are a believer in Jesus Christ, everything that you just read, in the beginning half of Romans 2, in the beginning in the latter half of Romans 3, about judgment does not apply to you. How do we know that's true? Look at Romans 8, verse 1, last verse today. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation, talking about that judgment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what it's saying here, folks? It's saying for, the, for those who have embraced Christ through faith, there is now no negative judgment, no failing on that day. Some argue we won't even appear before the great, great white throne. I, I think we will. That's for another discussion. But I believe that's where we'll meet Jesus. And Jesus is basically going to say to those who are his, come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Now, why would Jesus say that to us? Because we lived a really moral life? No. 
because somehow we threw a Hail Mary at the end and some did some great altruistic act that earned our way to heaven? No. Because we had really good motives and we meant well. No. We've already established none of that can allow us to pass the judgment. The only reason we pass is because of what the Reformers 500 years ago called imputed righteousness. It's not confusing. The righteousness we didn't have to pass the judgment is imputed to us. It's given to us. It's counted toward us with what Jesus did on the cross. Now do you understand? As I said a thousand times, people always say to me, why Jesus, Jamie? Why do you have to be so rabid about Jesus? Well, duh, because as we learned last week, it's his atonement that has brought forgiveness. As we're seeing this week, it's his righteousness that allows us to escape judgment. And it's only because of that. And only through faith can this become true for you. That's why I beg you all every week, have you trusted in Christ for eternal life? Because if you've trusted in him as Lord and Savior, you leave here today, though a little fearful of judgment, I'm sure, as we all should be, but with a great, solid confidence that he is yours and you are his. And you need not worry about coming judgment. So as I ask you each week, where are you when it comes to this? Where are you when it comes to Jesus Christ? Because if you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, you have every reason this week to rejoice. You have every reason this week to wake up each day and say, thank you for your mercy. And by the way, that's how Christians should wake up every day. We don't wake up every day somehow full of ourselves and arrogance and self-confidence, we wake up every day with God confidence and saying thank you for your mercy with grateful hearts. And yes, with a little fear in us because we know how awesome and holy he is, but using that fear to drive us toward him and his mercy and his grace and toward our more holy lives ourselves based on his forgiveness and his graciousness. So who are you? I would submit to you, you're an image bearer, wonderfully loved by God. But you're fallen, and you're in trouble, even today deep trouble. But none of that has to be your abiding identity, because in Christ, he changes everything. And God is no longer angry. There is no more judgment. There's only joy. There's only life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that... As the Gospels and the Epistles lead us through some very difficult truths that our world today wants not to talk about at all, that, God, as we wrestle with these things, we come out of that tunnel of chaos in a glorious place, having realized that though none of us wants to think of anger and wrath and judgment and things like that, let alone sin, that, Lord, once we own that and give it its due, we realize that that's precisely why Jesus came, that 2,000 years ago, rooted in history, Jesus came so that we might escape judgment, so that we might no longer have to experience your wrath, so that we might be forgiven and set free. And so, Father, I pray for any of us here today that are in Christ, as Romans, 1 sa- or as Romans 8 says, as we accepted Christ, I pray, God, that you do nothing but give us assurance and joy, peace, relief, spur us on toward holiness as a result, Lord, of the amazing riches of the gospel that's invaded our lives and lord i pray for someone here today that might not yet have come to the point in their life where they've received christ i pray god that today might be the day that they do so right where they sit 
they believe and trust in Jesus. They'll take these elements for the first time today in such a way that is eternal in scope, and they'll realize that Jesus is the one who has bought their way to eternity and to you. And so, Lord, right where they sit, they trust you. God, as we go to the table right now, may we all be very mindful of the price that you paid so that we might know you, so that we might have the riches in Christ that we have. May we take this bread and this wine, and may we eat with joy and worship. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.